0: Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gary Fetke. Gary Fetke is an Australian orthopaedic surgeon with a focus on preventative medicine and nutrition. Gary has concentrated on the role of diet in the development of diabetes, obesity and cancer. He has been speaking out on the combined role of sugar, particularly fructose refined grains and polyunsaturated vegetable oils in the epidemic of inflammation and modern diseases. He has incurred the wrath of Australian regulatory bodies for his stance on public health advice, but he and his wife Belinda actively defend the benefits of low carbohydrate dietary patterns. Their ongoing work has uncovered the vested interests and ideology shaping nutritional guidelines at the policy level in Australia and beyond. I had an incredible time speaking with Gary and learning from his experiences. His perspectives are clear, logical, and backed up by his decades in clinical practice. He has become a needed voice of reason within the paradoxical realm of food guidelines and public health. Gary's notions for improving public health are far from extreme and are simply based on the foundational dietary principles of reducing or eliminating consumption of processed foods, particularly refined sugars and vegetable oils. Changes such as these are the easiest to justify on the weight of scientific evidence but the most difficult to enact due to the pernicious relationship between multinational food corporations and government agencies. Through the work of both Gary and his wife, Belinda, countless people have been able to take control of their health, hopefully having a lasting impact on the health of generations to come. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much uh, for coming to speak with me today, Gary. Um, I'd love to know when was your first insight in your training or practice that there was something um, maligned about the way we practice medicine or even the ontology of medicine, the, you know, the way we treat uh, humans for health and disease? Where, what was your first inkling that there was something wrong in what we were doing?
1: I was a medical student. No, that's just things that didn't make sense and uh, I have um, forever challenged the system um, and it always makes for an interesting discussion. In orthopedic meetings, in our, our X-ray meetings, someone will say black and I'll say white. I may actually agree with them but it's actually interesting to see how people actually conform form their opinions and then stand by them and... So much of what we do in medicine is actually collapses like a house of cards when you start to poke it. You know, we can talk about drug therapies, you can talk about nutrition, you can talk about surgical procedures. You know, it seems like a good idea. However, when you actually chase it down and you start to question on what basis did we actually come to that conclusion then you start finding out all sorts of interesting stuff. And that's certainly what's happened with the last several years is that most of the discussions that, you know, we've been talking about trying to base our decisions on science and nutrition science is very much not that far from nonsense. You know, it's just non-science. There's so much stuff which is opinion, and its behaviour, and what I call generational education, because we did that because our teachers told us to do that, and their teachers told them. So whenever someone has an opinion, which doesn't make sense, I've tended to challenge that over, and it's not just nutrition, but done it for decades. But what I've come to in the last 10 years is actually try and actually understand their opinion, that's fine, but how have they gotten to that opinion? And that's the fascinating bit. What bit of literature, what information has gotten them to that opinion? Because often, if they've gotten that opinion, I want to know how they've come to that understanding, because obviously their opinion is challenging my opinion. And so therefore, you know, that's good science when you actually listen to the person who doesn't agree with you, you know, which is fine. And that's the way science should be. It should be. You know, I've got a you know, you've got an email from me, and on the bottom it's got "science evolves by being challenged, not by being followed." So we don't we don't have everything worked out. Um, you know, and clearly the whole COVID thing is a whole lot of no, non-science flapping around there because the situation changes day by day, week by week, hour by hour. One country's doing this, one state's doing this, someone's doing something else. Yet, you know, and again, we're not allowed to discuss that as medicos I realise that's a contentious issue at this point in time. However, we're not allowed to discuss it or actually give a, a different opinion or a fragmented opinion because that's you know, they've got APRA guidelines in place and they're being politicised. So I've been asked to get involved in that debate, not because I have an opinion as to what's right or wrong. It's just I'm in there because we should be able to question the directives and make them stand up so it, it's an interesting time, but it, it's really just a flow on of what I've been questioning for for, for or forever. I spe- I can even remember as a twelve year old going to, down to the state elections. My mother was supporting one party at the time, and I was down there as a pain in the ass twelve year old asking the opposition parties their stand on politics. So I've probably always been a questioner.
0: Well, I think that's probably the best so when, way did, when did... to be, you know. Um I I the reason oh, no, I no, like it's not, talking, it's not at all. It's a terrible. The reason I like talking to people is not because I think that they're right. It's because I want to hear what they think and you know, probably 90 99% of the ideas you hear are going to be wrong, but I think if you can figure out precisely where they're wrong, you've just taken a giant step forward. So I think I think um, questioning as much as possible, and particularly being able to ask questions without being hindered, is uh, something that should be valued more in science. Well, that that, that it's
1: theoretically that's what science is. That's the scientific method. You've got a you know you've got a hypothesis. You've got a belief. You are supposed to disprove the belief. <clears throat> but you know, there's a talk on mine on YouTube called "The Failure of Medical Education," and I delve into that because I think medicine and nutrition is all about you know if you do the courses nowadays it's about read repeat reward i use those things if you if you read the textbook and you repeat it in the exam and, and then you get rewarded you pass you don't get into any trouble you get remunerated quite well particularly here in australia and life life is simple <clears throat> and I have said to my medical students over the years that, that, you know, I'm still employed, you know, as a doctor by questioning. But the road at times has been somewhat rocky when you challenge those paradigms and you find out. And nobody likes to be challenged on their beliefs. But I think it's okay to challenge people on their beliefs when I think they're causing patient harm. And that's really where the whole nutrition thing unfolded for me. But, you know... um, Thirty years ago, I wouldn't operate on smokers, you know, for elective major uh, surgery, and you know there was enough literature around at that time if you looked for it. And I had, there was a talk I gave which was called "Where There's Smoke, There's Fire," but he you know, had to go looking for it. But there was information there saying that smokers actually do poorly with surgical outcomes and and, and major. In. Now, thirty-five years ago, that was complete. That was a really right-wing concept however nowadays that's perfectly accepted by the majority of the population that smokers have a poor outcome in elective surgery cardiac surgery you know that goes on you know plastic surgery everyone's advised not to smoke before anesthetics but I can tell you 35 years ago when I started talking about that I was just waiting to get sued because it was such a radical idea and 12 years ago when I started talking about sugar and the perils of it Everyone looked at me as though I'm you know, completely aghast. So I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to see that the concepts of too much sugar being troublesome for us and you know has actually gotten you know that's in the headspace of most people now. So that's but it's interesting that it's occurred in such a quick time frame.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess if we think about what we're what we're currently being taught, you know, I went through three years of of um tertiary education on nutrition and learnt essentially nothing um about nutrition. Um so if this if this is the framework that we're in at the moment, what do you see as the as the major um you know the things that are wrong with the current framework in, in medicine and particularly in nutrition?
1: Well I think you know it's it's one thing to say it's wrong. <clears throat> Um, But I think where I'm coming from is to understand where our textbooks have been written. And this is some of my work, particularly my wife's work, Belinda, and because she said you guys are going blue in the face talking about the science and she started looking at the vested interests. And when you start looking at that, you find out that our textbooks have been written by industry for over a hundred years. So there's a thing called the Flexner Report which was commissioned by Carnegie and Rockefeller, so Carnegie of um, steel and and, and Rockefeller of oil, and they commissioned that in 1910. And with that they closed, I think it was 54 medical schools in the US and Canada and actually got rid of holistic healthcare or phased it out and introduced the pharmaceutical industry And then they sponsored universities and university medical schools for decades. As long as they were doing research, that actually suited that concept of what, um, read, repeat, reward and to medicate and to operate. You know, uh, preventative health is just, you know, there's no money in preventative health. And so therefore, when you go back in time, you find out our textbooks, my medical textbooks, have effectively been written by the pharmaceutical industry since 1917 and uh, I think it was sort of 2020 2019 Harrison's which is our major textbook of medicine the authors of it the editors had received 12 million dollars from pharmaceutical industry you know, so it's if you if you the most critical textbook which is referred to in medicine harrison's as but is, is You've just got to question the vested interest on it. And then with nutrition, it all comes back to October 22, 1917 with the formation of the American Dietetics Association. And that was a historical moment where they came together and they formed that and they started writing the textbooks for nutrition and dietetics for the world. The only problem was, in retrospect, the, the person who started that was a woman by the name of Lena Cooper, she then wrote the textbooks for the next 40 years, which became the textbooks right around, and the model became the model for the UK, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, uh, and Canada. The problem with Lena Cooper, undeclared, but go back in retrospect, is that she was a Seventh-day Adventist working for John Harvey Kellogg and was completely under the influence of the vegetarian, vegan cereals and grains and if you can go back to their textbooks and we've actually gotten hold of a couple of those books not from the 1917s but 1921 and they're essentially a vegan cookbook and a vegan textbook and you can go into the textbooks nowadays for dietetics and you start looking up uh, words like protein you find protein in there but you, you really find the terms of meat we went we had a place called nutrition for life for some years where we tried to set, help you know Patients find good advice. We had dieticians, diabetes educators, all on board. And one day I said to them, can I have a look at your textbooks to the dieticians? I just, these are your textbooks, which are part of this current curriculum. And I I looked up meat. Just wanted to find the word meat. Anyway, there were three references in there. You know, this 800-page book to meat. One was Mad Cow Disease. Another one was uh, food poisoning and a third one was under potential sources of protein in the protein chapter, but it was only in a table. And we, I, we, talk, we said to the, the, the team, I said, okay, how much do you know about meat from your textbooks? And they said, we know a lot about meat. And I said, no, go," and said, you know, don't let me just read it. Go home now. I want everyone to actually go to their textbooks and find out how much education you had as a dietitian and in nutrition about the benefits or the harms of meat. It wasn't there. The 2013 dietary guidelines, which if I think if you had James Mookie on there, James has been instrumental in trying to get hold of getting that reviewed. When you look at that document, and James and I have been working together on it with Belinda, when they looked at the food categories there were only two questions that were, that were out of sync. They had two specific questions they wanted answered. And one was, what are the benefits of cereal and grain and what are the harmful effects of red meat consumption? Now, that's, that's a loaded questions before you even start your research. Every other category had what are the, what are the harms and benefits of different foods which is what you want, isn't it? You want, you know, what, what are the harms and benefits of salt and what are the harms and benefits of fibre? Um, you can go down every one of those topics and fruit and vegetables. <laughs> but that question, completely loaded, was what are the detrimental effects of red meat consumption and what are the beneficial effects of, carb, of, of cereal and grain? Now, that then becomes... You know, and everyone goes, oh, they only the dietary guidelines. But then I used to be eating by the dietary guidelines and I was 20 kilos heavier than I am now. I was fatter, I was sicker, I had high blood pressure, I was pre-diabetic. I had my, you know, my my tumour issues and I was metabolically unwell. And I was eating by the dietary guidelines. Sure, I used to sneak in a bit of chocolate, but I was doing the right thing. And the dietary guidelines form the advice that is given out by doctors, it forms the advice that hospitals feed their patients, nursing homes feed their their, their clients, uh, schools feed their children, uh, the defense forces feed their troops and the, and the prisons feed the inmates. Um, you know whenever you look at world data on on uh, armed forces they, they're getting, they're getting obese. you know these are our elite soldiers to help look after us. And obesity is the a, is a major increasing problem within the Defence Forces, not just here, but also in the US. And the US have published quite a bit of data on that, all following the guidelines.
0: Yeah, you deal quite a bit, correct me if I'm wrong, but with um, diabetic patients who are fairly advanced and um, may need uh, some sort of amputation. Um, I was wondering if you could go into what you see uh, as the main problems uh, in the pathophysiology of diabetes and particularly how it gets to that end stage uh, where, you know, you're getting blindness, um, you're getting diabetic ulcers on um, on the lower parts of the legs and feet. Uh, what's going on biochemically that's, that's causing all of this to happen?
1: Well, just to clarify, I'm taking a bit of extended leave for a couple of reasons at the moment, but Um, So I'm not actually treating anyone with diabetic feet problems. And part of the politics of my life is I'm not working in the public hospital system, which is where most of my experience was. So for well on two decades, or a bit more than that, I was looking after most of the diabetic foot complications in northern Tasmania. And that was just, you know, um, we call it, it was a Friday afternoon, and I used to call it Fetke's effed up, fructose free, fungating foot folly Fridays. (laughs) But I don't quite know what the effed up stands for. (laughs) And and every week, my operating list, we'd have planned for elective surgery on a Tuesday. And I can remember, but by Friday it had changed because there was someone requiring acute management. And most of of those were acute trauma or infections. That just had to be done. And I can remember, come back a few years now, but I did, I think, six elective operations in a 12-month period. So every Friday was effed up because we were just, everything that had been planned three days beforehand was, went out the window by Friday. And a lot of that was diabetic foot complications. And so I don't know, you just have one of those moments when you go, hang on, enough's enough. Because it used to be, you know, an occasional thing and then all of a sudden it became all consuming and then a lot of the patients just got ended up referred there because nobody would else you know, it's not much fun looking after patients with diabetic foot problems. You know, you see them have to see them all you know regularly, week every week or two, contact casts to bribe them. it's I oh, how's your ulcer, well it hasn't changed much and it's you know not particularly rewarding and it's smelly you know it, 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 it was smelly and then one day it dawned on me when I went and saw one of my patients as an inpatient his foot out of control infection and he's got poorly controlled glucoses and he was he- eating ice cream in the hospital as an inpatient and I said, "Hang on! What the hell is happening here? You know, why, are you, why are you eating ice cream?" He said, oh, "I like it." Well, I said, well, you know, "This is just bad for your blood glucose." And he said, "I have it three times a day." And so the hospital. And I said, "Hang on! This is this is where did this comes." So then I started looking into it in the hospital food, and the hospital food, if you've got diabetes, allows, and arguably recommends three desserts per day. Sugar coated sugar-fueled foods and, and and snacks which are carbohydrate-laden. And I suppose that's when I, when the penny dropped for me about, and I know it, it, it's so flaming obvious to think about it, stop feeding people with out-of-control diabetes excess sugar. I then started to say, hang on, we've got to do something about this. And I was told, no, you've got to change the guidelines. And once I started questioning the system and questioning the expert advice that was coming from dietitians. Well then the war started. You know, and it literally. Um, and around about that time I started looking into sugar. I started looking at the metabolism of fructose, which was very little known. That's not, most people don't are not aware that it wasn't until two thousand and ten that a fellow on looked Tappy is a Swiss fellow who I have met defined the definitive or did the definitive description of fructose metabolism. So we know a lot about glucose metabolism. Sugar is glucose and fructose. And we've known quite a bit about glucose. However, there's got a heap of new stuff about glucose just in the last couple of years, particularly in tying in with insulin, diabetes, orthopedics and vascular disease. I mean, we can go down that path in a sec. Um, but... He described the metabolism of fructose in 2010. And I I, I went, wow, this just makes sense. All this up, you know, all these pennies started dropping, you know. And when I started looking at fructose and then the effects of that on the, the liver and the kidneys and on our eating habits and how it changes and drives behavior. And then I started looking at glucose, and then I found out that when, you know, if you're insulin resistant or if you're overweight or diabetes, you get 30% of the glucose that you eat gets turned into fructose. And I went, wow, hang on, this is runaway train stuff. And then I came up with a nutritional model in 2013, 2014, something like that, nutritional model of modern disease, which was the combination of glucose, uh, excess carbohydrate, fructose, and polyunsaturated seed oils becomes an inflammatory mass. And that gets inserted into our cell membranes, our mitochondrial membranes, and potentially is the source of a lot of disease. As it turns out, that model is probably close to the mark. Again, it's just a hypothesis. But I got onto social media because Belinda and one of our daughters said, Hey, Dad, this is really important stuff. You, you know, you're making a difference in the hospital. You should tell people. Within 24 hours of um uh going public and on, on the into into the world of the internet um i was being um uh chased down by someone who was working for coca-cola because and this is and then ultimately as times gone on i became the target of the cereal industry and we've got these documents that have been presented to the senate inquiries where they're saying that the Cereal sales are down in Australia. This is from the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturing Forum since dissolved. but the the heads of the CEOs of these major corporates in Australia sit down and have lunch together every few months in Concord Golf Club, and the minutes of those meetings came to us, and they said cereal sales are down in Australia because of the concepts of low-carbon paleo, and... These seven people need to be targeted, and obviously the only Australian on that Australian doctor on that list. It took some years to uncover after I'd been reported to APRA and gone through a whole lot of stuff, and that's essentially where Belinda's work came because I've, I've learned all this biochemistry because it made sense. But then I had to defend my situation, I had to defend my medical degree and my registration, and so essentially I've done a, a thesis, a doctorate, on nutrition metabolism and, and biochemistry because I had to defend myself. And after, and after um, about three years, ultimately, they found against me I'm, that the doctors and, and the surgeon, I'm not allowed to advise my patients to reduce sugar. That's literally what the, the medical board came down with. Thank goodness for social media because we announced that and Belinda put a post up which had over a million viewings because it just doesn't make sense. That's you know, you know, like doctors not being allowed to tell patients to stop smoking, you know, with what we know about the perils of sugar. And then it took another two years, three Senate inquiries, the National Ombudsman, and ultimately I was cleared. Some, some of your viewers probably know about Tim Noakes in South Africa, and Tim was going through exactly the same situation in, in Cape Town. His, his court case was uh, an open court case, Mine was behind closed doors and I got to present so little of that biochemistry, you know, but I presented it, but it was just ignored. So the, the more time's gone on, we realise this is not about biochemistry, this isn't about health, this is about politics and this is about profits. And again, so therefore, if it's not about science and it's not about making people better, how on earth did we get to these Conclusions: How on earth did we understand? How, how did our guidelines get to be so corrupted, to be so full of processed food? And you look at the healthy guide to Australian eating, it's it's shocking. And, if you, and it's even worse if you look at the one for in, the indigenous community where it's actually got, and it's not branded, but it's got the image of a Coca-Cola bottle on it. And it's got an image which is consistent with Wheat bix and, we, you know, 40% of Australians are illiterate. So if you've got a visual image, you won't need to read the writing on it. I mean, it's a fac- and that, that, the whole thing about health is health information. And you sort of asked me how we got to this point. Got, I actually think it's disinformation. And we've got a tragic level of, of, of literacy of 40% in the community. We've then got the major... Compu- uh, Pharmaceutical, food industry giants controlling our education, controlling the information that's going out. And it's not about health, it's about profit. And so when you delve into the biochemistry and you go, hang on, this just makes sense. Finally, I understand now why my health had deteriorated and why most of my patients' health had deteriorated and why those people, particularly with diabetes, deteriorates with excessive carbohydrate consumption. So diabetes, I think you want talk about the biochemistry of that to a degree. There's a talk I've just done in the last few months on, on carbohydrate, the dose is the poison, where I made… I thought, okay, we understand, you know, there's this demonization of carbs you know, and I'm part of that low-carb community, low-carb keto community. It's Let's take the argument and say how much dose is actually considered toxic, which is, you know, that's the argument really. is something's toxic, how much do you need for it to become toxic? Because we're all told that you've got to have your glucose, you've got to have your carbs according to guidelines. So therefore, my definition of toxicity is when it has a negative impact on a system. So, the moment something has a negative impact on the system, and your viewers might um, see this as a controversial statement, but I came to find that I found out that the biochemistry supports the argument that it's one teaspoon of sugar, of glucose, has a negative effect on the system. Fructose has a negative effect if you say it drives behaviour towards eating, and ultimately it has an effect on. on our our, our liver and kidneys and our um, lipid profile. Um, And it's really, uh, to go through, it's probably worthwhile people having a look at that talk so we don't have to dwell on it right at this moment. But if the the two salient features about glucose um, is, one, it has a direct effect on the glycocalyx, and it has a secondary effect on insulin. So the moment you secrete, the moment you eat glucose, your body produces insulin to store it. Now, I make the argument that talk is that the body actually hates having glucose in the bloodstream. It hates it so much that it does everything it can possibly do to get it out of the bloodstream as quickly as possible. That's called maintaining our blood glucose at around four to five, four to five, is around about one teaspoon of glucose in the bloodstream. So the moment you have in excess of four grams of glucose floating around in the bloodstream, your body does everything it can to get rid of it, and it does that via insulin. It's a simple thing. Insulin has a, a pro—it it stores glucose as fat. It is a pro-growth hormone effect on tumours, and it has an inflammatory effect on the body and particularly our joints. That work came out of China in 2020. Great papers. Um, And I've talked about that before because I think they missed the point. They showed a a dose-dependent effect between glucose consumption and inflammation and insulin production. And at the end of it, they said, oh, we need to target insulin as a method of treating osteoarthritis. Hang on, hang on, you've missed it. If you actually don't eat glucose, you don't produce insulin. So it wasn't written by a low-carb trying to bang their own drum. It was literally going, they've targeted, they found insulin as an inflammatory hormone on top of it being a fat storage hormone and a growth hormone. Coming back to the glycocalyx, the glycocalyx is arguably the largest organ in the body. Most people think it's the skin, but it's actually the glycocalyx. It's the surface area of our blood vessels. And the glycocalyx is like tiny little fingers, which we've got in our airways to clear things, but they essentially just push the blood cells along in the bloodstream. It's arguably about the size of a football field, the amount of surface area in our bodies. I think it's actually a bit bigger than that, but I'll just say that. So the surface area, is, and it's, and it's under the direct effect of glucose and nitric oxide so nitric oxide which is something which is produced um, uh, has th- there's three forms of it one which is an endothelial one which is actually maintains our blood pressure there's one that's actually a, a neuronal one which maintains our blood supply to our brain and there's actually a, another one which is related to actually maintaining how our white cells move through into the tissues but for the argument of the glycocalyx, is that the surface of the glycocalyx will secrete nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is an incredibly effective vasodilator. So it literally opens the blood vessel up in front of it. It's only got a half-life of a microsecond, millisecond. But however, our glycocalyx, literally, as the blood cell comes down along it, down that tube, we're, talking to talk, talk, we're not talking about the aorta, we're talking about the tiny little Ar- arterioles. It'll come down and the, the glycocalyx secretes nitric oxide, which opens up the blood vessel in front of it. And then, under that effect, the, the blood vessel. So, it's literally pumping the blood along. So, the glycocalyx actually smooths out our blood vessels on the inside and is involved in nitric oxide production to actually produce, to spit that blood vessels, you know, the bl- uh, blood components down. The blood vessel. What's interesting, a dose of glu- a glucose, particularly elevated glucose, and particularly if they're up over a period of time, will harm that glycocalyx within minutes, and it's harmed for several hours, and then it will regrow. So if you've got diabetes where your blood glucose is elevated chronically, then your glycocalyx is on average half the thickness that it should be. Therefore, it's half the nitric oxide. It's also half, it's affecting the blood supply and it's affecting the flow. And the smaller the vessels, the more harm it is. So, therefore, you've got poor nitric compounded by fructose. One of the byproducts of fructose is uh, nitric oxidase. And nitric oxidase, uh, sorry, no, sorry. One of the byproducts of fructose is uric acid. And uric acid inhibits nitric oxidase. So nitric oxidase is the thing which actually releases the nitric oxide in the villi, in the glycocalyx. So if you have fructose on top of that, then its byproduct is uric acid. Uric acid affects the nitric oxide. So your glycocalyx is halved, let's say, the argument's sake. And then what... And then it's trying to actually produce nitric oxide to improve flow. But if that person's also had a fructose load, which is the half of sugar, then it's actually being harmed as well. So that combination just at a glycocalyx level, which is a flow issue and particularly the smaller vessels and the most important ones, will actually slow blood supply down to the periphery and slows blood supply down to the eyes. And then it actually increases the arterial tension so that actually pushes up the blood pressure. So we've actually got, you know, and apart from the fact that also once you affect nitric oxide by uric acid, you would decrease immunity and how white cells actually get in migrate through those poorly functioning vessels to get to the zones of injury. It's just quite fascinating. I, I, I mean, I didn't know this. And I just thought that it was a bad idea to give my patients with out-of-control diabetes three ice creams a day. And so I've been on this journey to learn a lot more. But all this stuff is not in your textbook, so it's not in my textbooks. And even fructose metabolism just creeps into the current textbooks. But it's all there and thank goodness for the internet because that's how I found out about this stuff. And then there are papers there and you've got to research it, but it's a matter of communicating with other people who are like-minded and who have you seen that? I can remember reading that... Um, uh dick Johnson is a nephrologist from the US and he has a book he's got a couple of books out fabulous lovely lovely guy and he published this stuff about uric acid and uh, not that uh, he's, he's writing uric acid but the polyol pathway which is the conversion of fructose of glucose to fructose and it was just one of those moments where you go oh, I get it you know now I understand the runaway train of our health disaster you know it's not and I've caught up with Luke Tappy, who was actually sponsored to come out to Australia by Coca-Cola to talk about that fructose by itself is not the cause of obesity, which is quite right. You know, fructose by itself is not the cause of obesity. But I listened to his talks. I caught up with him and he talked about all the side effects of fructose, the liver effects it has, it took the renal effects of it, the LDL production. He talked about all the side effects of it, but it wasn't just the cause of obesity. Um, But I I travelled to that meeting in Sydney to actually ask him one question. And I said, I'm going to, and I caught up with him lunch and I was going to ask him that. I said, I'm going to ask you this question after lunch. Um, It was interesting. It was at the ILSI meeting, which is the International Life Sciences Institute. It's their scientific arm of the food industry to say that everything's fine and it's not but Coca-Cola was a founding member of it. Anyway, I stood up there at the end of the, at the meeting. I said, uh, Professor Tappy, I'd just like to ask you one question. I said, is there a human biochemical requirement for us to eat fructose? I knew his answer beforehand. He said, no, Dr. Fetke. But when I asked that question, when I actually stood up at the Coca-Cola meeting, I saw a call at that, You when I turned around and said, oh, I'd Dr. Gary Fetke from Tasmania then, the entire audience turned around, so I knew that i would probably been on the right pathway for the last several years as an anti-sugar campaigner, walking into the um, into the lion's den. But uh, yeah, that was a bit of fun that day. So therefore, we, we don't we don't require we don't need to eat fructose. You know, don't take my word from it. Take look Tappies, who's the guy who described the metabolism of fructose. A very tiny amount. We produce it. We produce a small amount ourselves in the mesentery of the gut. And um, we also in um, in the seminal vesicles, which is interesting about the mesentery of the gut, because elite athletes, particularly endurance, actually do take honey supplements. There's a bit of work on fructose supplements, and theoretically, it doesn't shouldn't have any effect, any benefit. But fructose under extreme stress is metabolised a small amount in the mesentery of the gut. The rest of it gets done in the liver. So I think in the – and that's probably possibly the only role I can – that the, the biochemical link in there in a league sport and having some honey supplements, you know, th- halfway through it. I don't know how effective it is. You probably need to speak to um, – Paul Mason could answer that one. I'll have to have a chat with him one day. But, um, yeah, we're just bouncing topics around here at the moment. Uh, so, look, it, if we just purely look at the glycocalyx and we look at insulin – then you know all you need is above four grams of glucose to start having a negative effect. That so that goes against dietary guidelines.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing I wanted to um, get a little bit more into before I ask you a little bit more about uric acid because I do I want I really want to ask you about gout um, today, but. I want to make the distinction between the sugar that you're talking about, uh, which most people are consuming, and things like starches. Um, I wanted your opinion on whether you think the role of starches, these are things, you know, like um, whole grains, I mean, uh, yucca, um, taro, Mm -hmm. yams, sweet potatoes, I mean, these have been around for uh, tens of thousands of years, and and we seem to have utilised these starches uh, fairly well. Do you see a place for these types of starches in um, at least some individuals? I I know there's a seasonal and longitude and latitude uh, component to this, but broad strokes, do you think there's a role for these starches?
1: Is there a biochemical requirement? No. All right. So probably, do we, we can get by without them. Okay. Right. So there, If we look at an evolutionary aspect, there were entire seasons where we couldn't get it by without starches because they are a seasonal crop. Um, I, I'm trying to find the references to it. I, 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 I go back in time and say apparently we can track osteoarthritis by the migration of the, of the potato. So the potato came out of South America, so it's not... not it's not an indigenous crop around the world. It certainly shouldn't be an, you know, a seed, it shouldn't be available 365 days of the year. It's a bit like fruit, You know, I talk about that. I understand it's controversial, but nonetheless, if you come back down to the biochemistry, we don't need glucose. Our body, when it comes across glucose and fructose, is wired, evolutionary wise to actually get as much of it into the system so it can get fat for winter hibernation. So the majority of starches, complex carbohydrates, so they're they're only glucose or fructose or combinations thereof, you know, and the moment you put a a complex carbohydrate into your mouth, the amylase will start dissolving it into sugar. You can do that with a piece of bread. You just hold it in your mouth there. It gets all soggy, but very quickly it's sweet. And so the fruits the complex carbohydrates are seasonally available and when we come across them in nature then we are wired to go to eat as much of it as we possibly can and and the fructose metabolism via um its pathways on the uh hypothalamus and the nucleus accumbens make us quite addicted to it it's it's fascinating And, and and it also has a ghrelin effect which makes his tummy hungry, has an anti-leptin effect. So that dampening effect of being too fat, when you've got too much fat on board the body, the body secretes a hormone called leptin that affects the, the hypothalamus and tells you you don't need to eat anymore. But fructose has a direct inhibitory effect on that leptin effect on the hypothalamus. It's, it's just sugar makes you hungry. Carbs make you fat, polyunsaturated oils make you inflamed and sick. I think that was my meme at some point in time. And I recognise that sim- simplifying it down, but that's probably it. So if we've, if we've got a belief that – and yes, the entire cultures have, you know, will have a, a supply of yams in their, in their lives and, or, or, and sweet potato – um, and if that's a traditional food and it's seasonally available, sure, that's part of the way. So I, I might argue with it, it may not be tens of thousands of years, it may only be 10,000 years before we started apparently farming and, and cropping. We're far more nomadic. Part of that nomadic lifestyle would have been to go and dig up stuff as you, um, in between hunting down for you know, other foodstuffs, predominantly animal proteins. So... Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by the evolutionary aspect of it because if it wasn't available, how did we survive? And there's always exceptions to the rule, but on, in principle we've, 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 we've needed to survive with our mouse and that's actually being to hunt and we're designed for hunting. We've, uh, we are... Um, uh, I don't know if you've seen... Um, any of that work on persistence hunting.
0: Yeah,
1: just fascinating that we have the ability to sweat, we're ability to fast. We can actually we don't we can actually keep going for miles and miles and actually just push an animal till if it. You know we're not faster than you know the majority of wild animals, but we have the ability to keep moving them along till they just collapse under exhaustion. And then when they collapse, then you can go down and club them. You know that's that's probably how we did we we did it. Um, I've had there's, there's a fellow in the US who's a, he, he still teaches persistence hunting. Oh, I've got his name. I've got an open invitation to come and visit with him, and he'll he'll, he'll take me out on a persistence persistence hunt, and then hunt the animal, but acknowledge that that the animal's place and to eat tip to tail you know i think we, we, and that that that's when you you know uh, i think we're missing that in the whole animal versus plant nutrition debate is that an animal eaten tip to tail is nutritionally complete you know it's got everything we possibly require without the excessive carbohydrates which are the things which i think so much of our obesity problems is people chasing nutrients which they don't find in their day-to-day food. So if you don't have a complete nutrient profile that hits you over a period of a week or so, right? You know, you don't need every single micronutrient every day because we've got backup suppliers of a lot of them. But if you don't get your micronutrient balance right over a few weeks, then you're constantly chasing more food, thinking. I use the example of a pizza. Pizza's got lots of colours on it. Heaps of carbohydrate on the base. I'm the guy who eats all the pizza topping, by the way. If one comes out, I'll eat the topping, but not the base. So you eat all this carb, you know, eat all this stuff, but it's micronutrient deficient. So what do you do? You eat another pizza, you know, and you eat another one. All of a sudden you're still missing your micronutrients, but you've eaten truckloads of carbohydrate, truckloads of energy that you don't actually need. The body produces an enormous amount of insulin to store that as fat over a period of time. You become insulin resistant. Fat, you get fatty liver, then you get all the other sequelae, which you know you talk about with me being metabolically unwell. That whole the whole metabolic syndrome. It's it, you know once you've, you know, I, I say once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You know, just oh, okay, you're you're eating that because and you're going to be hungry in a few hours' time, looking for more food. The classic is a, is a Chinese meal. You go out and have Chinese and they put a lot of sugar in that to cover the, the other spices. And part of that is so you're going to order more. I'm not stupid. I mean, it's, it's like Chinese food in China, I haven't been there but I've, I've been in other parts of Asia, is nowhere near as sweet as, as, as it is in Australia. And we've all been on that journey where you actually go and have your Chinese meal and then on the way home, particularly in my university days, you're finding a kebab on the way home because you're hungry. And then if you've been on the Terps, and I can remember that, then you come home and you look for ice cream. And if you've had a really bad night, then you're trying to eat ice cream with a fork. You know, that's
0: <laughs> – these sometimes, are pre-Belinda days. Okay. Sometimes if I want to have a big meal at night uh, and I've just had lunch, I'll make sure to have some honey or some chocolate so – I because I think it'll make me even hungrier. Um, I'm not sure <laughs> okay. if that works, but, you know, sometimes well, I no, you like be, to have big meals.
1: Well, it's quite interesting. Occasionally over the years, and I, you know, the last 10 years, I, some sugar has snuck into my meal. And it, it, I used to be in a you know, chocolate addict, family block a day. You know, I wouldn't take plasters off unless you brought me a chocolate cake, you know, and I, I was a complete chocolate and sugar addict. But now I've been off it for so many years, and I can remember having a Thai soup, which actually had a whole lot of sugar and I didn't pick it, and a couple, a few times this has happened. I lie awake with the most vivid nightmares that night. Just amazing. Going, and like, I wake up and go, I think I've had sugar. I don't, I don't know where it's come in, but I think I've had it. And the same thing goes, and I'll just be, I'll be hungry for the next. 12, 24 hours. I just go, whoa, I'm so hungry. But now I understand the biochemistry. I go, okay, that's all right. So, you know, people say, do I eat fruit? And I say, yes, I do eat some fruit. But if I do, I t- I'll have some berries, which are generally in season. And I'll have three or four of them. And I'll have them at night with some double cream and, and a granola up. And so, therefore, if that's going to make me hungry, it's going to make me hungry when I'm asleep. So I'm biohacking, you know, like if you do, if you, if I'm going to have that because fruit in the wild is designed to make you hungry. You know, that's what a, why a possum will strip a tree bare in a night, you know, two days before the fruit ripens for humans to eat, It literally, a possum cannot possibly eat that amount of food unless it's something driving the biochemistry. I use the example of a Brazilian barbecue. Have you ever been to a Brazilian barbecue? like have as much meat as you want, you know, know, animal-based protein, just literally you cannot, you just have to stop. You just can't get through it. Uh,
0: Have you spoken with um, David Rubenheimer?
1: I know of David, but I haven't spoken to him.
0: Oh, right. What you're saying just reminds me uh, very much of his work with nutritional geometry um mm. we're, we're striving for an amino acid target and we'll eat as much as we need to um Absolutely. reach that target so and I, I think his work is awesome and i think i'm trying to get him on the podcast but yeah i think what you're speaking to is exactly that point um that somewhere in in the brain you know we've got these pathways to make sure uh we eat uh to a certain level, uh, and in nature, that would that would provide us what we need. But we're we're far from the Garden of do, Eden. Do you now. know my Mar- Do you know Marty Kendall? No, I
1: don't. So Marty's um, entered this nutritional field because his wife's got diabetes. It's not very obvious, you know, type one, and he's gone down the low carb. He's in another engineer in this field who's actually just looked at the data. And mm-hmm. uh, Marty, uh, well, it's truly look, worth looking him up. in, he's up in uh, Queensland, I think. So you should get him on have a chat because he he talks about the entire nutritional profile. and He actually does that as a whole metabolic investigation now. And he's got a nutritional. And again, I, we, in the early days, I said Marty, this is what we need. We we don't need you know the, the standard apps tell you how much sugar you've had, how much you know, how much protein, how much fat gives you some you know, kilojoule equivalent, which means we start counting calories. And heaven forbid that's just a nightmare but again because everyone thinks that counting calories is going to lose weight. Well, you're not going to count. That doesn't work if you're constantly hungry and it doesn't work if you're micronutrient deficient. So he's been working very hard on this modelling and come a long way with it in the last five years to, to actually look at what your overall micronutrient profile is over that whole one week, two week, three week, four week period, and I think that that's called balanced eating, and then probably add that in. That's over a twelve month period when you take into account seasonal availability. And we, as as a you know, human society, we've drifted so far away from our evolutionary diet. It Doesn't matter where you are. You know, I talk about, the, and I, I've rewritten the dietary guidelines. You know, in a in a brave Moment, I don't know if you've seen that. Where I've said, you know, eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food based on your culture and environment, avoiding added sugar and processed food. Whoops, one sentence. It's actually gone to the NHMRC. Apparently, James tells me that they thought it was too simple. So <laughs> no, I said, I think the budget, I don't know, is ten million dollars. I said, give me eight, and I'll rewrite it with you know with nice font, and the. Uh, because everything, you know, dietary guidelines just get reinterpreted in so many different ways, whereas what I've just done in one sentence, I've actually described a low-carb, healthy-fat, relatively animal, animal-based diet in that one sentence. But that that's the way we evolved. You know, we evolved by... And we got to the top of the food chain by eating fresh, local, seasonal, whole food. You know, I, I talk about fructose and, and, and latitude because that's, I think, important because of the, the role of vitamin D in the equation in the metabolism of the byproducts of fructose. And um, it, But, you know, in Tasmania, we're incredibly fortunate that I can actually get fresh, local, seasonal, whole food. You know, and that's you know, and a lot of places around the world can't get that, particularly with lockdown. You, get, you couldn't get fresh local seasonal food, but your alcohol outlets outlets were all delivering to the home. Mm. You know, that's completely insane.
0: I want to touch on this um, locality idea a little bit more. You've you've spoken about the fats that we eat. Uh, and how they end up in the membrane and the cell membrane and impact membrane fluidity. And and, and also, the mitochondrial membrane. I think that's yes.
1: really that's another side of it. Yep.
0: And you've also spoken about eating seasonally, which in, in my eyes speaks to this idea that um, our intakes of different types of fats will change throughout the year. And if the fats we eat throughout the year are going to be different depending on what season it is, then the membranes of the cells in the mitochondria will also change throughout the year. Um, I haven't been able to find any information on what role, maybe more, what what role would more or less membrane fluidity play seasonally in keeping you healthy? I,
1: there's I'm just trying to think of his name is um, in uh, New York, He'll come to me. And he's, I came across his seminal work on, um, on fats and oils. He's actually written a book called Fats and Oils. And um, he wrote this article when I was really looking at the whole role of polyunsaturated oils in their inflammatory milieu. And um, I found the article and then I wrote to him and he said, "Hi, oh, Dr. Fick, you've got some good questions. I think you'll find the answers in my book. So I bought his book, read it from cover to cover. Uh, let's say it's a fairly dry topic, <laughs> human fats and oils. And um, the, uh, and I wrote back to him at the end and I said, fascinating read, but you haven't answered my question, which is what is the half-life of linoleic acid? which is one of the omega-6s, the pro-inflammatory one, which is this roundabout way to answering your question without giving you an answer. Because I said, I can't find that out. So if, if we're taking in inflammatory fats into our body, which is one of those arguments and linoleic acid possibly is the one which is related to a lot of inflammation as an omega-6. And he said, I don't know. but it could be four years. So it appears that the fats that we ingest are part of our body for a few months to a few years. And so therefore, that would tend to counter-argument your seasonality, fluid, fluidity aspect. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm trying to work out what's the half-life of fats in our body, and the one which has been looked at the most as far as I'm aware is linoleic acid, and it's somewhere between a few months and first name starts with G. It's coming there. Uh, I refer to him in some of the talks. I guess I've got a mental blank. So um, I'll send you the link when I find it, okay? Great,
0: right. great. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just...
1: And, and so therefore it, it's it's four years. Um, and I use I use the example, I tell the story because I think it's, It's interesting because those people who get rid of the inflammatory fats out of it, so you you can improve your diabetes control overnight, immediately, within hours, if you stop excessive glucose intake. You can improve your nitric oxide effect immediately if you stop eating fructose. But if it takes four years to get the inflammatory oils out of your body, then it's going to take four years. That's the half-life. That um, and I, I have two examples. One is my sister-in-law, and I'm allowed to tell the story, where she got diagnosed as MS, multiple sclerosis. Try, it's a slightly odd picture, but nonetheless, she finally listened to me and dropped the polyunsaturated seed Almost four years to the day, she said, oh, "All my symptoms have gone." Now that, that's anecdotal. It's not. But when I, you know, as I, I ask people in the car, low-carb community, that keto community, over time, I said, "Tell me what happened. How do you feel?" And lots of people feel different you know and improved health pretty well straight away because they're improving their metabolic syndrome but there's another group that actually tell they kept improving for a few years and you know to put a lighthearted moment my, my our daughter not our youngest uh, um, we're at the airport and at that point in time, the kids, she would always she was addicted to McDonald's chips. I realise it's a free plug for McDonald's chips, but nonetheless <laughs> she was addicted to them when you came off a plane that can I have some McDonald's chips, Dad? Because I cook in Cedar, oil. And she said, looked me straight in the eye and said, Dad, as a sixteen year old daughter, she looked me in the eye and said, Dad, I promise not to get pregnant for four years. So what what father is ever going to knock back a comment from their sixteen-year-old gorgeous daughter to say she's not going to get pregnant as a teenager? So, I said, good argument, informed decision. Here's the money, buy some chips. And it's a bit like smokers. I mean, you know, smokers who want to smoke nowadays—they're you know, making an informed decision to be an idiot. You know, that's that's okay. You know, there's so much information out there about smoking being bad for you. There's starting to be information out there about sugar being harmful for you there's some information about the seed oils being harmful to you, but there's so much disinformation. I call it deliberate misinformation by the food industry that, you know, you know, the classic thing is the cereals and the grains, you know, and and the whole fiber argument. I mean, I think we've got the cereal industry on sugar. We've got them on carbs. So their last bastion of defense is fiber. And, um, David Gillespie, not the author, but David Gillespie who is the Assistant Minister of Health two years ago came out with a public health statement saying we need to increase our fibre intake by cereals. Who wrote that? That press release was written by Kellogg's. So we've got our, our federal parliamentarians reading out press releases written by the corporate food industry. And I, and, I, and I know it's a controversial topic but fiber again when you start breaking it down literally or you can't break it down in soluble fiber we don't have a huge biochemical necessity for it and therefore when you start saying well if we actually don't need the bite we don't need it from a biochemical point of view and evolutionary wise we had small amounts of fiber in our diet why on earth did we end up with a food pyramid that had six to eleven servings of cereal and grain at the base of it. And that's when you start going back and you find out, okay, well John Harvey John Harvey Kellogg designed breakfast cereal to actually quell our lustful thoughts by and and, and stop us from masturbating. I know that's a huge topic in itself. But he he food was designed by Kellogg's and subsequent industries and bearing in mind that most of the cereal industries of the world started in a place called Battle Creek, Michigan, around the turn of the last century. And around that 1900 period, 101 cereal companies were developed there, but they were virtually all started by the Seventh-day Adventist Church and its members. And then they, Ellen G. White, who was the prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, actually came to Australia and started, I think, a company called Sanitarium but started up that it was owned by the church so they could actually continue to actually make money and don't pay taxes here in Australia. But that the whole sanitary and health and well-being is owned by a church entity which is a vegan organisation producing cereals, grains, up-and-go, highly processed foods and been involved in writing the dietary guidelines for 100 years telling us about the benefits of cereal and, and, and fibre. So fibre was there all to just get, you, get, you, get your bowels going. I'm not saying getting your bowels going isn't a bad thing, but nonetheless it was designed. It was a designer food, breakfast cereal, which was there to get your ablutions going and to quell your lustful thoughts. So well, it's not science, but it's ended up becoming part of the, you know, the, the fact that our Deputy Minister of Health says, bravo, we've got to have plenty of fibre, so it's good for our constitution. It's not based on good science, though. And that's why I find it's fascinating when so everyone, again, going back to the dietitians I said to them at one, we had what we used to have meetings all the time, just that we talked about topics and science. I said, Tell me about the benefits of fiber. Four dietitians okay? I said, Tell me about the benefits of fiber. Now how, they said, oh, It's good for you. I said, No, 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 tell me how it's good for me. Just tell me, tell me what's actually happening biochemically, where it's happening, what's happening. And they all four of them, smart women, all looked at me with blank looks, all looked at each other with blank looks and went, Oh, we don't know. We're telling one everyone this, but we don't know. And then you start then there's a great talk by Paul Mason on fiber. I was giving my diabetes talk when Paul was giving his fiber talk, and we were sitting next door to each other. And I said, and Paul I I just say to people, go along and look at Paul Mason's talk on fibre. I mean, that, that's it was the talk I wanted to give, but he gave it before me, and he's done it better than me. So it just—it's just a nice summary of the lack of biochemical, the lack of science behind it. It's—it's it, it's just fascinating when you, again, most of these topics you touch on them, they just fall over, and you just find out that it's just just so much of it's just made up.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I think um, I think there's very few people who are really you know thinking about these things who would disagree with um, what you, what you're saying. And I think I, I think a lot of people would have seen Paul Mason's talk on fiber. It's become something of a meme going around. And I, I really think we're yet to understand uh, the role of fiber uh, in the gut because I don't think we understand the gut very well just yet. Um, but I, look, I think I think it's part of our evolution.
1: Mm. but it's, it mimics the food that we eat. And if you actually have a wide variety of seasonal food, food that comes into your gut, you're going to end up with a fabulous gut microbiome, which is going to be involved in digestion and, and creating and the lower gut, uh, organizing some of those mi- micronutrients that we require. But the, the sanitized, highly processed food, seed oil, you know, chemically enhanced, antibiotic-laden food that we have that's, hitting our guts at this point in time, is wrecking our microbiome. But to believe that fibre is going to get you out of trouble there, well, you know, this, you know Australian expletives we can use to describe it, it just doesn't make sense. So if it doesn't make sense, how do people come to that belief? Okay, how do they come to belief? Well, it's actually based on religious ideology and it's not based on science. And I can tell you that they weren't looking at the gut microbiome in 1897 when they developed cornflakes. Yeah, they just had nothing to do with it.
0: Um, Gout. Um, Gout is something that it's difficult to find a straight answer about uh, what's going on with gout. Some people will say it's tomatoes. Others will say it's beer. Um, I don't. I don't tend to believe either of those. But um, in your talks, there does seem to be some pretty solid. Um, biochemistry showing that um, excess uric acid is a result of these um, this overconsumption of uh, refined foods. Um, so I was just wondering if you could just basically give give a give us a broad understanding about what what is precipitating gout flare ups.
1: Well, it's sort of been traditionally said, okay, it's the rich person's diet, and it's been demonised as too much. Meat and alcohol, and um, I I, I said meat rather than red meat. I gave a talk to the meat. You know, here's my conflict of interest. I'm an unpaid meat and red meat ambassador for Meat and Livestock Australia. Okay, they sort of ended up nominating me, and I don't know what it means, but I declare that conflict of interest. Um, and a part of one of the talks I gave to them was, why, why do we call red meat red meat? Why don't we just call it meat? You know, it's being discriminated. Why isn't it white meat, green meat, orange meat, red meat? Once it's cooked, it's brown meat. You know, and you know pork's actually called a red meat, even though it's a white meat. You know, so and, so when you start delving into that, you actually find out. Guess what? This is actually and looking at the biochemistry of different meats, they're actually all fairly similar. They just come in different colours and come from different animals, and actually, human meats actually are not a hell of a lot different to animal meats because we're just animals at the end of the day. So I've always I, I sort of fascinated why red meats become demonised because, and again, because it's got cultural intonations and it comes back to religious ideology, and it's this fascinating journey going down that pathway. So therefore, we've. If you look at society on the whole and look at data over the last 40 years, we've decreased our red meat consumption. That's the data we've got, whether or not we've increased our chicken consumption. But when you look at data, and they have classified as red meat, even though it's, we've decreased our meat consumption, we've decreased our alcohol consumption. We still have too much you know, as a society, we probably have too much more in pandemics and shutdowns. But Yet there's been a doubling of gout in the world and in Western society in the last ten years. So the graphs are there. We're decreasing our intake of the traditional foods associated with, it, but we've got an increasing problem. And again, I come back to 2010 and that look taffy paper. One of the byproducts of fructose metabolism is uric acid. I can remember my assistant who's a GP said, "Oh, you're absolutely full of nonsense, you know," when I said, "No, fructose is actually a byproduct of." Uh, uric acid as a byproduct of fructose. But there it is, I mean, um, my textbooks just went fructose, fructose, 6 phosphate and didn't say anything else. That was it. That, that literally finished there. And I realised my textbooks are old, but that's exactly what happened. So then I went, um, then the modern, it goes down several pathways, but effectively uric acid is a byproduct. And then when you find out that glucose via the polyol pathway, 30% of it, it gets converted to fructose. This is where I talk about the runaway train. So we're having these carbohydrate-laden diets. We're having insulin resistance. We've got people with obesity, pre-diabetes and diabetes, increasing numbers, 30% of the population are pre-diabetic, possibly more if we test it. We've got at least half to two-thirds of the population now who are overweight and obese, depending on which age group we start saying, okay, that group now are going to be 30% of the glucose that they eat, 30% of the bread, 30% pasta, rice, low ground vegetables is now getting converted into fructose. And I think this is the runaway train. I use that, that the term because I, you know, it's not just people aren't just going out and eating more and more sugar and arguably sugar consumptions come down a little bit. It's one of the arguments of the sugar-sweetened beverage industry to say actually we're not the cause of obesity because look, sugar um, you know, consumption is down, and soft drink consumption is down, but you know, some of that data is quite twisted around, which is not surprising. Have you caught up with Rory um, Robertson? No. Oh, Rory just takes that apart in great detail. He works for... The Reserve Bank is an economist, but he is a real bee in his bonnet about the fact that where all that data has come from. Uh, and Rory's work, again, just to say, uh, because that's the big article which keeps getting quoted oh, sugar consumption's down. I've gone to a, I went and did a sugar beverage course, a beverage manufacturing course with someone from the sugar industry. I, again, I didn't identify who I was, but I actually went to a uh, and they had someone there who got up and just quoted the same literature: "Sugar's not the problem. Sugar's not the problem." Well, in fact, sugar is the problem. But a lot, you know, there may be a portion of it which actually may be related to this excessive carbohydrate consumption that we have. We've got dietary guidelines that say that our diet should be 50% carbohydrate, it's 50 to 60%, but let's say about 50%. Well, I've just given a talk about the fact that we actually could probably get by with zero carbohydrate consumption. So where did 50% come from? Because it certainly wasn't part of our ancestral diet. Again, seasonal availability, not on a daily basis. It might have been for the few weeks when fruit ripened in summer or when we were able to get to the root vegetables by digging up a tree. And when was the last time you actually went and dug up potatoes for a meal? Most people go to the shops. You know, so if you go to the same thing with honey, when was the last time you climbed a tree in the wild to get honey out of the hive? I mean, it's just, you know, it's a big difference for the amount of energy expenditure to actually the caloric benefit. So, our excessive 50 60% of our carbohydrate in in the diet on a population that's already overweight and obese means that is a massive fructose load, which is now travelling down that uric acid pathway. Uric acid has a direct effect when the tissue levels go up of causing gout. Essentially, gout's the precipitation of those uric acid crystals in the tissue. So, and one of the problems with it, uric acid actually isn't measured very, that well in the bloodstream. Um, so you might have a normal uric acid level in the bloodstream, but your tissue levels are higher. Nobody's, you know, nobody in the right mind's gonna have a biopsy to work out the uric acid levels in the, in the tissue. Um, Ken Sikaris, who's a professor of Melbourne pathology, Ken, when you talk to him about uric acid, he actually thinks that we've set the blood level artificially high because it's a bit like vitamin D levels, where if you start testing people, you find out that 70% of people are actually vitamin D deficient. So, what did they do? They raised, sorry, they lowered the normal range so that 70% of people aren't abnormal. So again, he actually thinks the same thing with uric acid. We could probably drop 0.1 off that because he thinks, so we could add 0.1 to it. So that person who has, I've always seen, who, who clinically has gout and they've got a uric acid level that's the high range of normal. I so say you've still got gout in my mind because I think that that number's been artificially raised because 70% of the population are overweight and obese and have got an elevated tissue uric acid level. Um, quite common at arthroscopy to see uric acid crystals within the knee, within the ankle. So most people think about it, it's going to affect the big toe. Um, uh, it's one of the thoughts behind back pain that people have got hyper you know, elevated uric acid levels in the tissue. I, again, um, you know, I'm, I'm not into testing multiple. Doing multiple blood tests or tissue tests on patients i said look have a look at the amount of processed food in your diet here's my argument eat fresh local seasonal whole food blah 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 and see how you feel and you know now i know about the inflammatory effect of insulin on osteoarthritis i've got so many people who actually lose their joint pain before they lose weight I said, that's fascinating, you know, end-stage osteoarthritis, bare bone in their knees who actually are ready for a knee replacement. I said, well, look, just go to this low-carb stuff for a while, drop your insulin levels and see how, you know, occasionally I'll test an insulin level on someone who's interested in it. I said, because that, uh, there's no cost in actually getting rid of stuff out of your pantry. You know, just go and eat some whole food for a couple of weeks and then see how your arthritis feels because that's infinitely cheaper than me operating on you. you know, there's no, and so, and as, you know, as it turned out, I was, you know, every week I'd be talking people out of operations. And, and I know that sounds strange as a surgeon, but we, we don't have a system set up to talk people out of operations. We've got a system. I mean, I you know, I get remunerated by operating on people, not by not operating on people. One of the theories I've had is we should actually have a, you know, a reward system for surgeons who don't do any operating. You know, if I can avoid you having your knee replacement for the for five years, then how about you give me ten percent of the fee? I don't know. I, I'm making up numbers, but we have a whole. We don't have a health system. We have a sickness industry. Everything's dependent on just keeping things ticking over. It's it's quicker and easier to write a prescription out than it is to talk to people about lifestyle changes. There's no money or very little money in supporting people for dietary change. Uh, and that's exactly what they need. They, and they support, Belinda calls at Sam support, accountability, motivation. You need to keep people on track. You need to keep knocking down those fires that get lit up because of the disinformation that's out there. You know, this, oh, keto's bad, low carb's bad, you know, you need glucose to keep your brain functioning. It, it's just, These things are just made up, they're literally generational non-science. And so, but the system's not set up for that. And as a result, we're stuck in exactly where we are. We're on this spiralling health crisis that's going down. And if you're waiting for the government to change their mind about this and say, sorry, we got that one wrong, you know, that's not going to happen. So the the individual can make that decision today. To dro- they they can do that this afternoon. You can just say, actually, I'm going to go along and I'm going to have some meat and veg this afternoon. You know, I'm not a carnivore. I still have a bit of veg, you know, but I'm more carnivore than I used to be. Mm. But I also eat more offal than I used to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've got to,
1: um, I've got to deal with it.
0: Yeah, well, I think if if there's uh, one message that uh, um, we can get out, it's support your local um, farmer who's doing uh, responsible um, regenerative oh, yeah. uh, pastured uh, animals. Um,
1: and and are there are there if you look for them? Yeah, and they're now putting their flag up, and that's about supporting that that individual because that's that's the exit strategy. And we take the food miles out of the equation. We it, it's it, it just we're looking at those people are the ones looking after the soil. You know, if you've, you've, you've seen my talks, I, I do, I, I've i got an environmental hat that I wear as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the term I use is like the health of the people is determined by the health of the food, the health of the food is determined by the health of the soil, the health of the soil is determined by what we do to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that would be a, a great way to um, finish up here. And I think, uh, there's no point waiting for um, the government to tell us what's right. And I, I hope that podcasts like this uh, are really helping you get your message out there so that people can uh, make their own decisions about how to be healthy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think um, we we are very grateful for the work that you've done and, and the fact that you've, you know, put your neck on the line to um to get this information out there. It's, um,
1: it's still there. I'm fairly thick-skinned, though. This- <laughs> Um, one of my colleagues called me teflon at some point in time <laughs> a whole lot of stuff gets thrown at me but not a lot of sticks so. yeah
0: yeah um so i think um i think a lot of people are very grateful myself myself included so um yeah thanks for all the work that
1: you've done cameron look what belinda and i have done over the last several years 12 years or whatever is it, we actually think it's just the right thing to do and um, the, it's made a difference to our lives, it's made a difference to our family's lives and it has to actually help people. And um, I often use the term that <clears throat> that actually gives joy back in medicine. You know, when you actually, our diabetes educator uh, after a couple of decades of giving standard diabetes advice was unhappy and we found her skipping down the corridor one day with joy and we went, wow wow and because all she done is give people the right advice of turning the diabetes around just it's all why don't we just leave on wow okay
0: that would be great thanks so much
1: okay good luck man thank you
0: see ya thank you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as i did i've put all the links to gary's work in the episode notes if you'd like to learn more about him he also has many hours of insightful videos on youtube if you'd like to keep up with my work, feel free to follow me on social media platforms using RichieFlowNutrition. Thanks again for listening. Take care, everyone.